So tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about excuses. Excuses. Um, the title is The Root of the Excuse. The Root of the Excuse. You know, excuses can prevent you from moving into the destiny that God has for you. Do you believe that? Excuses can prevent you from moving into everything that God has for you. Individually and even corporately as a body can make excuses for not moving into the things that God has for us. I had a friend one time, kind of a farmer, country kind of guy, and he would say this in his eloquent farmer lingo. He would say, excuses are like armpits. Everybody has two and they both stink. So you can just file that away and use that some other time. It's exciting, huh? Excuses stop progress. Excuses stop us from moving forward. I recently came across an article of a uh, church that decided to have a no excuse Sunday. I know what you know how you, if you've been in church kind of long enough, you have churches that they'll have a friend day or they'll have invite a neighbor day, but they had a no excuse Sunday. And this is what they did. I think it's, I think we should try it here. This is what they did. This is what they advertised and how they marketed their no excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say Sunday is my only day of sleep. There'll be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that our pews are too hard. Eye drops will be available for those with tired eyes from watching TV late Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for those who say the roof would cave in if I ever came to church. Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold and fans for those who say it's too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites present. Relatives and friends will be in attendance for those who can't go to church and cook dinner too. We will distribute stamp our stewardship buttons for those that feel the church is always asking for money. One section will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to seek God in nature. Doctors and nurses will be in attendance for those who plan to be sick on Sunday. The sanctuary will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen the church without them. We will provide hearing aids for those who can't hear the preacher and cotton for those who can. You think that might work? You think that might draw a crowd? Excuses. We all make them, don't we? We all make them. Excuses are not new to the human condition. In fact, the very first human that ever made an excuse was Adam. Remember what his excuse first was? That woman you gave me. Remember that? The first excuse ever made was by Adam, and he began to shift blame and said, that woman you gave me. Excuses are not new to the human condition. They plague every one of us. But what I want us to see is behind every excuse is actually a root that's producing the excuse. Superficial, you stay at the excuse level, but the Holy Spirit does not like to leave us in the place of superficiality he loves to take us to where? Takes us to the root. Modern day psychology, psychotherapy, and counseling 
um, apart from Jesus, can keep people only dealing with the leaves on the tree. You sit down, 150 bucks an hour, and we're talking about issues. And how many know there's a lot of leaves on the tree, aren't they? There's no limit to what we can talk about and we can discuss. But those leaves are a product of what? The tree and then the roots. The Lord doesn't like to leave us in the leaves. He likes to go to the very root of where things are. And then when you start beginning to deal with the root, what happens? It affects the entire tree, doesn't it? Roots are important. All of us have roots in our life that the Lord wants to deal with. Let me give you just one example from Scripture of a passage that deals with this. It's not in your notes, but you can jot it down. It's in Hebrews 12, 14. You may have heard this before. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, who knows, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. A root of bitterness. Now you think roots are small, but roots don't stay small, do they? What do roots have a tendency to do? Roots have a tendency to grow and not only eclipse and grow within our hearts, but they grow outside of our hearts. And this passage says the person grows bitter, but it begins to defile everybody around them. So roots are something that shouldn't be trifled with. We need to deal with roots. But how many of you realize roots are sometimes difficult to find because where are roots? They're buried. You don't walk out in the yard and see roots, do you? What do you see? Blades of grass. You see flowers, you see trees, you see bushes. Where do you have to go to get to the root? Got to go down. But the only way to know where the root is is to find out what's growing up on top of it. Because when you see something growing, it exposes where the root is, doesn't it? So excuses are a means by which we can identify in our own life where something is growing that's unhealthy and the conviction of God will show us and then he'll deal with the root thus dealing with the excuse. There's no sense in dealing with the excuse unless you deal with what? With the, with the root, exactly. So tonight, I wanted to look at a, um, I think it would be kind of fun, to look at a couple of Bible characters that had some excuses that we may all share, and we'll let the Holy Spirit do what he does in our individual heart. And you say, well, why is this so important? Because we're getting ready to enter into a season as a, as a church that the tendency is going to be to make excuses to not go where the Lord is leading us. So let's deal with excuses now and the roots there that when the Lord says go, we do what? Say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. We'll echo like Isaiah once said, here I am. Send me. Isn't that, what you, isn't that the position of our spirits? Here I am. Send me. So our first character, as you might expect, is Jonah. Good old Jonah. Remember him? So here was the essence of Jonah's excuse. I can't. I don't want those nasty sinners to have a chance to repent. That's ultimately what his excuse was for not going to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, verse number 1 and 3. It's all there in your notes. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amatitai, to, to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, in a casual reading of the book of Jonah, one might think part of his excuse was fueled by fear. But in reality, fear was not the problem. Why did Jonah run? Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Why did he become angry? He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So we're finding out that toward the end of the book, in the life of Jonah, we find out his attitude towards the Ninevites was not so good, was it? He didn't want to go to Nineveh, not out of fear of his life. He didn't want to go because he knew the Lord would forgive them because he was mad at them. They weren't Hebrews. They were pagans. They were wicked. Jonah didn't like them. So his excuse for not going is because he didn't like them. So the root there is this. You can write this down. The root here is self-righteousness. The root of Jonah's excuse was self-righteousness. Anybody ever had a self-righteous experience where you actually look down on other people or you don't minister because you do what? You judge them based on your own sense of morality. Lord, I'm not going to go because I don't like them because of their economic status, because they're not cool or they're not hip or they don't sit at the right table in the cafeteria. Self-righteousness. This is a big one, isn't it? A root that the Lord wants to get at in every single one of our life. An excuse not to do what God's calling us to do because we actually look down on the other person. Lord, forgive us of that. Lord, forgive us of that. Next character, we're going to move quickly, is good old Moses. Remember Moses? Out in the desert, God caused him to do what? Go rescue my people in Egypt. So one of the first things Moses does is offer a, an excuse. In Exodus 4.10, he says, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, scholars sort of differ on what exactly he's talking about here, but some actually believe that Moses had some sense of a speech impediment in his life that prevented him from communicating well. And he was using that as an excuse. Now, I really bear witness with Moses in this because I, too, was born with a speech impediment. And if you're around me long enough, in relaxed moments, you're able to detect that even in my own speech. And as a kid, I remember the difficulty of trying to learn to speak. 
So my condition was sort of weird because as I would go to the speech pathologist, and, you know, you learn to talk to a metronome. Who's ever done that? Talk to the metronome. So they want you to slow down your speech. So I wasn't a stutterer. I had another condition that my brain would get ahead of my talking. It would get so far ahead, and I'm talking, and there'd be a moment in my speech pattern where I would just stop like, oh, and I couldn't say anything. I would just, I couldn't speak, literally. I couldn't articulate the word because I had a seizure, literally, in my speech center somehow. And the only way to compensate for it was to learn to talk slow. Now, you know how embarrassing that is? You know when it's really embarrassing? is when you're ordering food at a drive-up window, and that happens. It's okay to smile. It's kind of funny, actually. What would you have, sir? I, I mean, nothing comes. Sir, are, are you there? What would you like? And it would take me sometimes 40 seconds to get it out. <laughs> Hamburger! And it would always come out like with a shout. So speech impediments can be very debilitating and prevent you from doing certain things. In fact, for a long time, from 16, 17, 18 years old, I would actually not even go through the drive-thru window because it was such an ordeal. I would, like, go in to McDonald's and order my food and carry it out to the car because it was just horrendously embarrassing because inevitably I would seize up at the drive-thru window. Horrible. Isn't that terrible? Horrible. But it's enough to keep you from doing things, isn't it? So Moses here perhaps is struggling with the exact same thing. He's making an excuse. But what is the root of the excuse? The root ultimately was a sense of inadequacy. It was a sense of inadequacy that I can't do what you're asking me to do because it requires communication in this instant, and I'm not able to communicate at the level that's going to be required of me to communicate to Pharaoh himself. That's why I can't do it. Send somebody else. A sense of inadequacy. How many of you ever struggled with a sense of inadequacy and made excuses in your own life that's born out of that? I just am not able to do this. 1 Corinthians 1.26. I love this verse. It gives me such great hope. I know it will too, to you as well. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So what we view as an excuse, inadequacy to prevent us from doing things actually Inadequacy is a criteria to be used by God. In other words, the greater sense of inadequacy you have benefits you in the kingdom of God as long as it doesn't prevent you from what? Doing what God has called you to do. Because it creates what? Humility. Great humility. Because he is our adequacy, not us. Check this out. Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 
our limitations, my limitations do not limit God. Isn't that great? My limitations do not limit God. Conversely, my limitations actually enhance God's unlimitedness, doesn't it? Because God gets so much glory when he uses people that feel like they can't do anything. Listen, I mean, you're sitting in a, in a church right now that absolutely should not exist. There's no reason this church should even exist right now. Not because of Jeff. If you think it was because of Jeff and my ingenuity and brains and great tacticians and strategists, you are sorely wrong. God picked the two most incapable people to even do something like this. And why would God do that? Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That Jeff and I can take a few steps back and look and say, Lord, only you, only you, only you could have done this. And the Lord loves that. He loves to be our adequacy. So when you expose the root of inadequacy in your life, begin to quote this scripture and say, Hallelujah, yes, Lord, I am inadequate, but you are adequate. That I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because the enemy, the first thing he wants to exploit in your life and in my life is our inadequacy. But the enemy oftentimes does God's work for him because it is actually in the exposing of that inadequacy is the very thing that sets us free to move in the adequacy of Jesus. So turn the tables on the enemy. He, when he reminds you and points out your inadequacy, say, thank you, devil. You just reminded me. Now I'm going to lean on the adequacy of Jesus. Isn't that good? The enemy doesn't understand sometimes. He's actually accomplishing the work of God in what he does. The root of inadequacy. Well, here's the next one, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is kind of fun. This is what Jeremiah's excuse was. I can't, I'm afraid and too young. I'm afraid and too young. Jeremiah 1, 6 through 10. Look at what he says. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Now, was he really a child when he said this? No, he's an adult, but he felt like a child at the task he was being asked to do. Don't have time to get into that, but just research Jeremiah and find out what he had to do was no small task. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I will appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. What's the root here? He said he was too young. He's a child. What's he saying? He said, I'm too immature to do what you're asking me to. So the root here is simply this. I'm too immature. It's a, it's a I'm not ready syndrome. I'm too immature. How many ever used that excuse before? I'm not up to this task. I'm not educated enough. I can't, I can't quote enough scripture. I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet, Lord. I'm not ready. I don't have my, I don't have my um, high school degree. I don't, I don't have my bachelor's degree. I don't have my master's degree yet. I don't, I don't, I don't even know. I, can't, I can barely quote John 3.16. I'm not ready, God. But what does the Lord say he does for those who move out when they're not ready? 
the intentionality of God says, don't worry, Jeremiah. You actually go. You, you actually open your mouth, and I'm actually going to fill it. And I'm going to point you over nations, and you're going to destroy, and you're going to overthrow, and you're going to build, and you're going to plant. Do you realize one of our key callings as believers is to continue on the works of Jesus? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus himself said in John 14 that the works that I am doing you will also do and greater works because I'm going to go to my Father? Do you know one of the works of Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil? Do you know part of our calling is to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the enemy's kingdom? Who likes to destroy things? We all like to destroy things. I raised three boys. Boys love to destroy things. We love as kids to destroy things, don't we? We build a toy, we put it together just so we can tear it apart. We love to go visit people that have girls because then the boys can go grab the Barbie dolls and absolutely decapitate them and mutilate them and pull them apart. If you ever read boys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Boys just naturally like to destroy. There's something that God has put in all of us that likes to destroy things. How many of you have ever been part of a renovation project? Isn't it fun? Come on, you got to admit this, right? Isn't it fun to pick up the sledgehammer and start taking it to the sheetrock? To go into the bathroom and just busting out the tile? I mean, man, there's something deeply satisfying about destroying things. Am I right or am I wrong? Even you, even you ladies understand this. There's something cool about destroying things. Why is that, you think? Because the Lord has put in our DNA that part of our mission on this planet is to destroy something. And it's not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's the devil's kingdom. And we have the ability, the power, the commission to tear apart the enemy's kingdom and purposes in people's lives. And I'll tell you, that's fun to tear down things, especially the devil's kingdom. So much so that Jesus said even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church itself. That we're not only to take ground, but to take back ground, to take new ground and ultimately run an offensive against the enemy. Getting off script here, but listen. Many of our whole Christian lives are playing defense. Our whole Christian life is defensive. We're defending against the devil, defending, defending, defending. Guess what? We have never been really called to play defense. What are we called to play? Offense. The church of Jesus Christ by nature is offensive, not defensive. So we need to begin shifting our thinking. Excuses will bind you and hold you to a defensive posture in your Christianity for the rest of your life. That will get you into heaven, but that will not tear down the devil's kingdom in you and around you. So I suggest you go back and consult with the coach and find out what position you should be playing and get off of the defensive and get on the offensive and move into what God has called us into. That's a big shift in a mindset for a lot of us believers to move from a defensive posture to an offensive posture, not defending against the enemy, but actually going after him on his own turf. It's difficult to be ready sometimes for what God has for us. If you were waiting till you were ready, you would never get married. You would never have kids. God forbid. You would never have children. You're, you're never ready. I got married when I was 18 years old. I remember on our honeymoon night, 
I won't give you details about my honeymoon night, but I will tell you, at about 3 a.m. on my honeymoon night, we're at the uh, Ritz-Carlton Honeymoon Suite downtown Atlanta that my uncle paid for, and I remember getting up. This nice suite had like two bathrooms in it, and it was an amazing, amazing room. And I went to the, went to the bathroom, and I never left the bathroom. I just kind of sat there on the throne. I wasn't, you know, I just sat down. I, my, I wasn't doing anything on the throne. I was just using it as a seat because I didn't want to go anywhere else. I just sat down, and I had a moment of great clarity. I was looking at my wedding ring, and my thought was, oh, my God, what have I done? I just left the security and abundance of my mom and dad's house. Now I am married and I am responsible for now a wife and a future and all these things. And I'm telling you, a sense of inadequacy grabbed me and was squeezing the life out of me. I panicked for a moment. I wanted to like put my thumb in my mouth and call mommy, come and get me. I just made a big mistake. We have those moments, right, when we have a, a, a profound sense of inadequacy. But can I tell you, someone greater than my wife put a ring on my finger. His name is Jesus. He put a ring on my finger and said, no, I got you. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And 27 years later of marriage, I've had a few of those moments, but they've become less and less. About once a week now I have that, but that's not very often. <laughs> Never look down on yourself because you're young, biologically or even mentally or emotionally. I love this passage in 1 Timothy 4, 12. You can make a note of it on your own, but it says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. This is, this is what Paul is communicating to Timothy. Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers now look at this, what he's, what he's calling Timothy to do as a, as a young person and, and immature, he's saying you can do this. You can set an example in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And he goes on to say out of that character, you're going to do this, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Now, understand, this is not how we think. Guys, before you preach and teach, you got to go to school. You got to go to Bible college like I did. You got to go to, you got to get your degree. You got to graduate from cemetery. You got a seminary. You got to go and get the, you got to get the education that will, that will qualify you to, to preach and, and, and teach. And we, and we buy that lie and we swallow that lie. The sense of inadequacy grips our heart. And we can't do it until I've achieved some benchmark, but yet God is saying, don't look anyone to look down because you're young, but move into what I have for you. This is great and it's powerful. I'm not against Bible college. I'm not against seminary. But don't wait. That's not the benchmark. That's not the litmus test. Obedience is. Do not neglect the gift which was given to you through prophecy, which the body of elders laid their hands upon you. Next one. Next excuse maker. Elijah, Elijah, not Shah, with a J. I can't. I'm not worthy. Who's ever felt that one? I can't. I'm not worthy. Listen to this in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. This, he's putting a, she's putting a hit out on him. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He isolated himself. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So he has this excuse that he's given. I am unworthy to do this. So when you have an unworthy thought process, what's the, what's the root of that excuse? It sounds a little harsh, but it's self-pity. Self-pity is the root of that. Anybody ever struggle with self-pity? Throw yourself like pity parties and waller in it and go home and go to your room. Self-pity also comes in the form of pouting. Maybe that's a better word. The root is a, is a pouting spirit. Who's ever pouted before? Who's a great powder? <laughs> what is that? That's just, that's just self-pity, isn't it? I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm just, you know, self-pity. That's a huge one, isn't it? Self-pity will just destroy your soul and your spirit, man, as you wallow in it. It's, a, it's almost like a converse form of self-righteousness. It's the, it's the other side of the, that ugly coin that operates in us. A sense of just self-pity, wallowing in the mully grubs. Woe is me. It always happens to me. Everywhere I look, everybody's against me. The name the devil wants to give you is Eeyore. You know, remember Eeyore? Come on, you know, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, chubby little cup. You remember Winnie the Pooh, right? All right. Eeyore. Eeyore struggled with what? Self-pity. Woe is me. Woe is me. Always, the glass is always what? Half empty. Everything is negative. It's a critical spirit. Man, do you know people like that? It's easy to know people like that than it is to acknowledge it at you. <laughs> yeah, I know somebody like that. When I look in the mirror, I'm looking right at him. Self-pity. It's a root that needs to be repented of like all these roots and exposed and pulled out for the ugly thing that it is so something far ugly doesn't grow and become worse. Isaiah, number five, Isaiah. A little bit like the previous Elijah, but nuanced a little differently. Isaiah said, I can't, I have a too sinful past. I have a too sinful past. This isn't exactly like self-pity. This is something a little different. Isaiah 6, 5, when Isaiah's having this incredible experience. If you haven't read Isaiah 6 lately, it's a great chapter, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his trains filling the temple, and he sees these angels flying around, seraphim and cherubim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, he's having this amazing encounter. And one of the excuses that he begins to Offer to the Lord immediately. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So he begins to have this view of God, which exposed his what? His sinfulness, and he actually withdraws from God because it's a wrong view of God. What's the root here? The root here is condemnation. 
Condemnation. Guilt and condemnation. Do you realize the Lord doesn't operate in guilt and condemnation with us? Because in this moment, Isaiah was about to learn a very valuable lesson. We get a wrong view of God. That when we come into God's presence and we, and we start seeing the ugliness of that, we run through this demonic lens of condemnation and we withdraw from God. We actually pull away. Do you remember Adam and Eve did the exact same thing, didn't they? Remember that? Did they not do the exact same thing? That they sinned, they covered themselves, God's coming, what do they do? What do they do? They, they hid. What happens when one of the sons and daughters of God begins to withdraw and hide? What's the action of God? What did, what did he do for Adam and Eve? He found them. Adam, where are you? You think he knew where he was? He went for him. He comes right to where you are, doesn't he? He did the same thing with Isaiah. He took a, an angel, took a coal off of the altar and came right to where Isaiah was. Listen, condemnation is a huge one. Many of us feel like because of our sin and what we have done has disqualified us from the destiny of God in our life. And we withdraw from God. Not withdrawing from God, we withdraw from the purposes of God and the destiny he has for us because of what we've done. We have a sense of, I have just disqualified myself. And we relegate ourselves to the bleachers. We put ourselves on the bench. The Lord has never put us on the bench. He puts us in the game, shifting our view of God, we have a wrong view of God if that's how we see him. He's not afraid of your sin. He can handle it. You know why he can handle it? Because Jesus took everything, your past mistakes, your present mistakes, the one you are yet to make mistakes. He took them all. He gave you this incredible identity in him. Man, come on Sunday mornings. We're talking about this during our Elevate class about our identity in Jesus. Because once you get identity, it produces intimacy with God. And once you have intimacy with God, you find that you have an inheritance in Him. And when you have your inheritance, and you move into the destiny that God has for you. You see, many of us want to start off with the destiny that God has for us, but actually you got to start off with identity. Knowing who you are leads you to intimacy with Him. Then you discover your inheritance as a joint heir with Jesus, and then you walk in your destiny on the building blocks of identity, intimacy, and inheritance. See, that's how this works. That's what Jesus has done inside of all. He can, he can handle your mess because he doesn't even see your mess anymore. He sees you as a son. It's a beautiful thing. The root of condemnation. Pull it out and get rid of it. Cast it out. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life comes in and replaces the law of sin and death. Number six, just a last one here, I think. Yeah, we're good. One of my heroes is Gideon. Gideon and I took a couple of years together, he and I. Lord dealt with me in, in this guy a lot over the period of about, of about a year. Transformed my life, the life of Gideon. Gideon's excuse was this. I can't. I don't have the right position or ability. I can't. I don't have the right position or ability. 
Think of this in terms as this. Gosh, I'm just a Waffle House cook. There's no way I can do anything from this position. I'm just a car salesman. I'm unemployed. We use our position as an excuse. I'm, well, I'm not positioned to do anything for you. And this is what Gideon did in Judges 6 and 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But, sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Second excuse. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Now here, in this passage, we have, we have two excuses operating at the exact same time, and they're very interesting. The first excuse is, I'm in the wrong position. I'm in the wrong place. I can't serve you from here. That can be a big one for all of us, isn't it? Well, I don't, I'm in the wrong place. Well, I, can't, I can't serve you here. That's what he's saying. I can't, I can't do it. Is that, a, is that legitimate in the, in the eyes of, a, of an omnipotent, omnipresent God who can get to you? This is the same God who can build rivers and deserts and highways and wildernesses. He can get to you. And wherever he can get to, he can work through you. And sometimes in the most unexpected places, the destiny of God is revealed in your life. I had a friend of mine one time that lost his job. He was a pretty successful engineer, Georgia Tech graduate, really successful, went through a difficult season of life, lost his job, um, just kind of a mess. And literally, he could not find a job. This was around 2009 when the economy was in the toilet. And ultimately, all he could find was a job as a Waffle House cook, believe it or not. This is a Georgia Tech master degree engineer, and he couldn't find anything. And he had to take a position as a Waffle House cook. And man, he just, he hated it, but he had to have some form of income. So he began to work there. But the Lord began to change his heart over time, and he began to thank God for the place and just tried to make the, the most of it. There was a particular customer that would come in early every morning to eat breakfast around 5 a.m., like on Wednesdays and Fridays. And he was the cook, early morning Waffle House. You're the only guy there, right? You're the Waffle House cook, and, and then you have the customer. So you just interacting with this guy, and he did this over a number of months. And one day, they struck up a conversation, and the guy asked the cook, he said, you don't really, what did you used to do for a living? You look like you've always done this your entire life. And he begins to tell him, yeah, I'm a, you know, aeronautical engineer, and I've done this and done that. And, and the guy said, wow, you know, I actually, um, I'm a senior vice president at this particular company, um, and I really like you. Can you come in for an interview? And that next week he came in for an interview, and he got a job. Isn't that crazy? He was at Waffle House as a cook at 5 a.m., degreed engineer, and God found him at the Waffle House. So positionally, it doesn't matter where you are, as we do all that we do as unto the Lord and say, Father, I choose, as David said in Psalm 
25, or 24, I choose to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. David said that as he was in his eight-year trek fleeing from the, from the king who was trying to kill him. He said, I am making a choice to see the goodness of God. Because if you don't choose to see the goodness of God, what are you naturally going to see? What Eeyore sees. But when you begin to see the goodness of God in every situation, you're going to find the goodness of God in every situation. And he will find you in the most unlikely places and change you. Isn't it good? So that's the first excuse, right? Lord, you can use me anywhere, anytime. I'm full of yours. In the Waffle House or in the palace, wherever it is, Lord. Lord, help me have a spirit of Joseph. Whether I'm in the, whether I'm in the pit or whether I'm in the prison or whether I'm in the palace, Lord, I'm full of you and all yours and God meets us in each of those places but the next excuse is the one we're going to end on it's one that's interesting because if you noticed in this passage Gideon is angry at God he's angry at God the first excuse he begins to give he begins to reprimand the angel and says if God was really with us why has all this happened to us why are we being oppressed by the Midianites? Why am I hiding in a wine press? He's angry and he's bitter at God. And it's completely closed up his spirit. Twisted thinking. Gideon thought their plight, the Israelites' plight, was God's fault, but he could not see truth. When you're angry with God and you're bitter at God because you have interpreted the actions of God as, as wrong and unjust and unfair, you begin to have a warped view of the circumstances around you and you begin to interpret them through the lens of your own fallen nature and you come up with the wrong conclusion. Fallen humanity cannot come up with the right answer. We're flawed and we begin to see God is at fault, and we are angry at God because God did this, didn't we? We do that, right? Lord, it's your fault my bank account's empty. It's your fault my child died. It's your fault my husband died. And we begin to take the pain and the suffering of our life, and we begin to ascribe it unto God. We become offended and bitter at God himself. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? When a human heart begins to get angry at God, we begin to withdraw from the very one who is able to give us grace to sustain us to the things of life. One of the worst conditions I've ever seen a person arrive at is a person who gets consumed with anger toward God. And it doesn't always show up at first because you see the anger manifest itself toward other people, our family, our friends, our bosses, our situations. But then you begin to pull back the layers of that, and you find out something happened, and they got offended at God himself, and they got angry. Perhaps there's some of us in the room tonight that are struggling with that very thing, and the Lord is right there, wants to take that from us. You see, it's, it's okay to have a grievance with God. He can handle it. Read the Psalms. Read Lamentations. Boy, Jeremiah and David have some very authentic, real conversations with God. And it's okay to express your heart and your pain to God, but you take your pain and frustration directly to Him. And just like any good father would, when a child comes, and maybe you've had a 
had a child and do you remember when the, when the child will come to you and they're asking that proverbial question, why, 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 why? And sometimes you can't give them a why, can you? But what can you do? You hold them. You love them. I don't understand why, but I'm here. And I love you, son. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here for you. Man, and what I do for a living, I, and I've had the, the, the I, I have had the privilege of, of being with families and people going through just hard situations, profound losses, deep, deep cuts of loss into the human nature. And one of the questions that you'll get sometimes from people, they'll say, why did this happen? Why did this happen this way? You know one of the worst things you can do in that moment is try to answer the question. Don't try to answer the question. God doesn't try to answer the question. Job himself, God, why, why? God says, where were you, Job? When I made the mountains and spoke the sea and made the sun, where were you, Job? What was God doing? God was wrapping Job up in his sovereignty. He says, okay, Job, I'm gonna hold you. I'm holding you through this. You see, a high view of God is a good thing to have. God is sovereign. God is providential in our life. And you're sailing on your little Christian boat going through life, and it's a wonderful thing on your Christian boat. you got love, and you got joy, and you got peace, and you got prophecy, and you got tongues, and you got um, kindness and joy, and you got all these wonderful things that this boat has on it. But as your life moves to the, as your boat moves down the sea of life, there's going to be things that's going to happen sometimes. There's going to be a torpedo that's going to come out of nowhere and it's going to rip a hole straight into that boat. And the joy and love and the prophecy and all that's just going to feel like it's going to sink right to the bottom. But on all those boats, there's this lifeboat and it's called the sovereignty of God, a high view of God. And sometimes that's the only place you can go is to crawl into that lifeboat and rest in the arms of the of the Father to make sense of what's going on. Johnny Erickson Tata, if you know that name, anybody know that name, Johnny Erickson Tata? She was young um, and she broke her, her back in a swimming accident in her late teens. Now she's probably in her mid late 60s. She's a quadriplegic. The Lord has used her mightily around the world. And it was asked of Johnny Erickson Tato, how do you get through every day of the weight of carrying around this body that doesn't function, you know, every day and still have joy and still have peace? And she said, I remind myself every day when I'm struggling to breathe and I'm struggling to move, I remind myself of a very simple truth. Earth is short, heaven is long. Earth is short, heaven is long. That this little bit of time I'm suffering pales in comparison to the eternity I'm going to enjoy. She says, with every bout of suffering and every moment of pain, Lord, I'm not holding you against that because I know you have promised a place for me that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into my heart the things that you have prepared for me. 
So yes, guys, take your anger to God. Express that to God. He can handle it. Let him hold you. Crawl in to the expanse of his sovereignty, and he'll hold you. And you will discover a grace you wish you never knew existed. And that's a beautiful kind of grace to get you through it. Amen? So, Father, tonight, Lord, we love you. And we thank you that, Lord, your word is like a double-edged sword. It pierces between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. But, Lord, it's not a sword that is meant to hurt us. It's not a sword that is meant to kill us. We know a sword in the enemy's hand is meant to destroy us. But the sword in the hand of the Holy Spirit is meant to save us and to set us free. So, Lord, we open our hearts, we open our lives tonight to allow you, Lord, to expose any roots that need to come out of us, whatever they might be. And I believe as we share tonight, perhaps, Lord, for some of us here, you highlighted a few of those things within us. So, Lord, we take a moment tonight and we repent of those things. If the Lord did that for you tonight, just in your own way, maybe under your breath, say, Lord, you showed me this tonight. I see where that root is. And I, I acknowledge that it's there. And I repent of it, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that the weapons that you've given me are not of this world, but they are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. So, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I repent of this root. And I cut it out of my life in the name of Jesus. I rip it up from my heart. I rip it out of the thought processes in my brain. I say, oh, Lord, create now a clean heart in me. Now, Lord, renew my mind by your Holy Spirit and transform it. That, Lord, I'll even leave tonight free, free of this, Lord, free of this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And declare that he that the Son has set free is free indeed. And all of us said together, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your patience.